Well, again, it's great to see all of you this morning. David, did we get that cartoon up? So I've got to start with this. Everybody see that? I had a friend text this to me. God's saying, time to rise and sign. And then behind the tomb, Jesus says, just 10 more minutes, Dad. And then God says, you resurrect this minute, young man. I mean, this is, these are the texts you get when you're a pastor and it's almost Easter, right? It is kind of funny, though, to think about this in terms of the sermon series we've been in, right? Like, we've been talking about time and preparation. How many of us have had this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, the alarm clock's going off. I am not ready for that. If you returned from a great spring break adventure with kids or with your family, you know that feeling of like, oh, I got to re-enter work. Okay, I, I guess I can do it. What I want to think about this week is with the familiar passage that we just read, Jesus coming into Jerusalem, all the gospels record it. It's called the triumphal entry. It's when there's this huge parade, this huge celebration, this outpouring of support for what Jesus is doing. How did he get there? Like, how did he show up in that moment? And, and what, how was he prepared for that moment by God? Like, can you imagine walking into a place and having that kind of welcome and just kind of people receiving you? How did that not get to his head? How did that not make his ego sort of swell to these huge proportions? How did he stay in that moment? And I really wrestled with that this week, and I wanted to kind of offer a couple of insights around that. There's an outline in your bulletin, but I want to start uh, by thinking about what preparation does for us. So when you prepare for something, your work, your presentation, stuff that you're doing with your kids, preparation assumes something. It assumes that you're, you're counting on something happening. You're anticipating something. You cannot prepare if you're not anticipating something. So we took our kids on a trip this past week to Texas, which is where my family's from. Texas in the springtime is lovely compared to when we normally go there in the summers, and it is oppressively hot. We prepared for the journey by packing our stuff, by we, I mean my wife, Jill, packing everything that we needed for our kids, anticipating warmer weather. So packing shorts, packing t-shirts, not a lot of heavy coats brought on this trip. And one thing we've learned over the years of going to Texas, and this is true any time of year. So if you, have, if you ever have to travel to Texas, this is a very important note for you, okay? You might not hear anything else in the sermon today, but hear this. In, in, in Texas, you can anticipate overeating. Shocking, I know. But you can anticipate eating great food, barbecue, Tex-Mex, my favorite, of course, queso, Everything needs to come together there, right? Because it's just so good to eat so much good food. So what have we learned over the years of going to Texas? We anticipate overeating. So how do you prepare for that? This is, this is the one thing, you guys. If you hear nothing else this morning, here it is. When you're in Texas, eat a salad for lunch. Eat a salad for lunch. Because if you're in, staying with my folks, my dad loves to cook big breakfasts. We're going to go out and eat lots of good stuff for dinner that night. Barbecue, queso, ice cream, sometimes all in one. And you need to have a salad for lunch. You're going to anticipate overeating. So go eat a salad for lunch. In this moment, in today's text, Jesus is anticipating something far bigger than barbecue and queso. He is anticipating what's coming. All throughout the Gospels, he has dropped these little hints, these little nuggets, these little breadcrumbs to his disciples. The Son of Man is going to be persecuted. Stuff is going to happen to me that is out of my control. I am going to go to the cross. I am going to die. He has said these things. He has conjured these images for his disciples. And this week, he hits the final leg of the journey as he enters Jerusalem. And again, what prepared him to come into the city 
It wasn't anticipating eating lots of food. It was anticipating doing the will of the Father. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, We're going to look at a passage from Luke 9, and then uh, we're going to go back to this passage that we just talked about a moment ago. Here's the thesis. It's a very simple thesis, six words. You can write these out if you would like. Anticipate great things. Anticipate great things. That's part one. Part two is trust our provider. Anticipate great things. Trust our provider. So say them with me. I'll say the first part. You say the second part. Anticipate. Trust. And when you say trust our provider, look what you can hold up now. These wonderful cards that our kids gave to us. I hope every one of us finds a special place to hang these up in the week ahead so we can remember those wonderful moments we just had together in worship. Anticipate great things. Trust our provider. There's an outline in your bulletin. You can kind of make those two points work with the outline. Sets his face toward Jerusalem. And then provider is the second point. So turn with me to Luke chapter 9. If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to grab it, pull it out, turn on your Bible app. If you need a Bible, we have some at the table at the back. You're welcome to take one. And we're just going to read one verse from Luke chapter 9. And so to set the context for us, Luke 9 is kind of in the middle of Jesus' ministry. He had a three-year ministry on earth. His first year was kind of introducing himself to people. His second year was a year of people being excited, of people coming to faith, sort of stepping into this wonderful movement that he had begun. And then the third year is the year of opposition. The year of opposition is what we're going to talk about when we talk about the triumphal entry later on. This one comes to us from that second year. Jesus has been going around in the countryside, mostly working with people on the margins. And now he's preparing to go into the heart of his own faith, the Jewish faith. He's going to Jerusalem, and this moment is recorded. And if you want to picture this with me, picture standing out on a hillside, and you're looking out over the city. You're looking out over the city of Seattle. You're looking out over the city of Bellevue. You're looking out over something much bigger than yourself. You've got this great vantage point, and you know something is coming. You're anticipating something. Listen to this very short passage about what Jesus felt in that moment. This is Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, for him to ascend, to be resurrected, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face. You've got a fill-in-the-blank on your outline. Here's where where the the fill-in-the-blank comes in. Jesus, this is another translation, steadfastly and determinedly set his face to go to Jerusalem steadfastly and determinedly. Can you say that with me? Steadfastly and determinedly. That last one's a great Scrabble word. What does it mean to steadfastly and determinedly do something? When's the last time you did something like that? You were given a big assignment at work. You had something going on with one of your kids. You got focused on your marriage. You really wanted to develop a relationship with someone that you hoped there was more potential with. You steadfastly and determinedly turn your face toward the thing in front of you. Because what do we know? Wherever, whatever direction we're facing, that is where we are going to go. Jesus looking at Jerusalem steadfastly and determinedly to me is one of the greatest portraits I have of Jesus that inspires me to courage. This is a heroic portrait of Jesus. This is the portrait that we all love kind of in pop culture and all throughout American history. We love that individual who's looking at some challenge, who's looking at that big thing and going, oh man, I don't know if I can do this, but I've got to go do it. I've got to get there, right? You face this if your team has ever played in a championship game. 
You face this if the opposition is so strong and you're looking at having a hard conversation, you don't know how you're going to get through it. You turn your face toward it and you steadfastly and determinedly do it, right? Here's what's different about what Jesus is doing. When you and I face something that we need to turn our face toward, whatever the challenge may be, typically we draw on our inner resources. What do I mean by that? I mean you think about the positive inspirational speech from Rudy, right? You fire yourself up thinking about those sources of encouragement that are encouragement, right? That get you excited about doing the thing in front of you, but it's not from you. Or maybe it's just something that's meant a lot to you. Maybe you have a note. I I have a box in my office. I call it my rainy day box. And it's filled with notes people have written me over the years that just encourage me, right? So maybe if I'm about to face something hard, I go in and read a note from my rainy day box, right? Maybe, uh, this is great, maybe you have a playlist that you just love to play to get yourself hyped up for something. I mean, we all have this, right? This was true in high school soccer. It's true in your 30s. There are songs that just get you excited for what's in front of you. I have a friend who still texts me to this day uh, the song Eye of the Tiger on Sunday mornings. He's like, here it is, buddy. Go, go preach. And I'm like, okay, Eye of the Tiger doesn't really do it for me, but I love the thought. I love that you're thinking about me. The problem with all of those sources of motivation is there's not enough power there. You get tired of hearing Eye of the Tiger. You've heard the speech from Rudy so many times. You've talked yourself up. You've pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. And the problem with those things is, is the lowest common denominator there is you. And we have such limited power to actually persevere, to steadfastly and determinedly face the challenges that are in front of us. Jesus knew this because he's fully God, fully human. And so in this moment, in Luke chapter 9, here's what I believe. He is not reminding himself through Eye of the Tiger that he has to go to Jerusalem. He is reminding himself of who he is. Earlier in this sermon series, we talked about one of the most powerful moments in Jesus' life when he's baptized in the Jordan River. His cousin John baptizes him. The heavens open up. There's this blinding flash of light. The Spirit of God descends upon him. And God speaks these words into his life that forever changed him and would forever change you and me if we could only hear it. You are my son, the beloved. In you, I am well pleased. You are my daughter, the beloved. In you, I am well pleased. Jesus heard those words. He received them. And from that moment on, not that he didn't struggle, not that he didn't face doubts, not that he didn't face temptations, but from that moment on, nothing else could compare to that high watermark of the Father's love for him. Nothing else. We are always trying to find something else to fill us up, to spin us up, whether it's Eye of the Tiger, whether it's Rudy, whatever. And what Jesus shows us in this moment is a key gospel principle. That it is not about him showing up in this moment and doing exactly what God wants to do. That's important. But he knows first that he's beloved. He starts with being beloved. That's where the gospel enters in to this moment. The gospel is not, I do this for God and God will love me. This is not a transactional moment for Jesus. What's happening in this moment, I believe, is in Jesus' mind, he is being reminded, I am beloved. I belong to God. My Father will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Therefore, I can steadfastly and determinedly face Jerusalem. I can face this thing that I know is going to end in my death. 
And honestly, as someone that struggles at times with courage, I struggle with courage in leadership, in ministry, I mean, you name it. I just, I default to kind of this attitude of scarcity, and it is hard for me to call upon my courage. This is one of those moments where Jesus is not just some figure that I like or some teacher. He is the Lord. And he is a mentor and a figure to me that I look up to and I say, if Jesus could face Jerusalem in this moment, then my challenges I can face. I don't have to face the weight of what he faced. My challenges are minuscule compared to what he went to do. But if he can do it, I can do it. Can you say that with me? If he can do it, I can do it. Church, that has to be true. There is no way that a church like ours, that any church could exist in the day that we're in, in the challenges that we face with a culture that wants nothing to do with faith, that truth is relative, any of those things, we steadfastly and determinedly rehearse that gospel truth. I am beloved. It starts with the love of God. Then I can step into things that God wants for me. Then I can turn my face toward Jerusalem. It is not build myself up and get myself right and then I'll go do it. That matters. But the starting point, and Jesus shows us this, is that he is beloved. So are you, Bethany. So are you, beloved. Start your challenges this week with that thought, okay, I'm beloved. And that is what's going to provide me with security for the journey ahead. It's not going to be studying for all my tests. It's not going to be prepping the perfect lesson plan. It's not going to be writing the perfect sales pitch. It starts with me being secure in who I am in the Lord. That is an amazing gift to give our world. And I just want to ask, what's in front of you this week? If you're looking toward your version of Jerusalem, what is that? What might that be? Are you anticipating a business meeting that you are in charge of and you wish you were not in charge of it? Are you trying to guide your aging parents or elderly relatives through some health crises and it's just taken everything out of you? I think our prayer as a church needs to be, God, Remind me that I'm beloved. Like, I want a solution, but I just, I, I need to remember who I am. I need to remember who you've made me to be. I want to steadfastly and determinedly face what's in front of me, so help me. For me this week, guess what? Easter. That's a big day. One of my friends calls it the Super Bowl of pastors. And I would include in that all ministry leaders. I'm excited to preach the gospel next week. This will be my fourth Easter with y'all, which is pretty amazing. It is a privilege to get to preach on Easter. And my commitment is I'm going to share the gospel as clearly and winsomely as I can. And what I hope for, what I anticipate, what we steadfastly and determinedly are called to together as a church in the week ahead, I believe this, is that we are called to reach out, to expect and anticipate great things when we ask someone to join us here for Easter. One of my favorite things about Easter is how every year somebody brings like a family member. So I get to meet your grandma or I get to meet your uncle or I get to meet your mom or your dad because it's one of those things. Like you bring your family with you. You bring your roommates with you. You bring your friends with you. Bethany, start dreaming about that this week because you know when you bring your friends here, you know what I'm going to be about. You know what worship is going to be about. It is going to be about Christ and Christ resurrected. And there are people in our lives who need to be here, who won't be here without our invitation. And I would love for this room to be filled up and to be rejoicing. I'd love for the people in the buildings next to us to hear us singing out, singing praises to the resurrected king. I would love for that to happen next week. I'm anticipating great things. Will you join me in anticipating that in the week ahead?
Will you join me in anticipating a yes from your coworker who you think, man, that person wants nothing to do with Jesus Christ, but God, I think you want me to invite them, and oh my gosh, they said yes. Would you join me in anticipating great things? Because that's part one of our thesis. Can you say it with me? Anticipate great things. Oh, say it like you mean it. Anticipate great things. There we go. Trust our provider. Say it with me. Trust our provider. That's what we're going to talk about now. God is my provider. Easiest fill in the blank you will ever have in an outline ever. God is my provider. Hold up your card. You got it on a card. It's in your outline. It's on a card. Do you think there was a message we were trying to send today? Now, here's where this loops into the story that we heard read for us from the triumphal entry, from Jesus going into Jerusalem under this parade. When the Seahawks won the Super Bowl, how many of y'all went down to the parade? Right? Like, yeah, like a whole bunch of you guys. Okay, two. Still. Yeah, and you brought me confetti from the Astros parade, which touched my heart. Uh, When I was uh, growing up in Houston, 1993, the Rockets won first of two NBA championships. I went down to one of those parades. It's amazing. It's a frenzy. There's this anticipation. There's this buzz that's in the air. It's just a really cool thing to be a part of. I can't even imagine what it's like to be on one of the duck boats, on one of the trucks, riding through a parade like that. Like you're one of the players on the Seahawks. They're cheering for you. It's exciting. It's amazing. I cannot imagine just the goosebumps that you would get from that. But I thought about that this week as I thought about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem because you know what? If you look at all the gospel accounts of Jesus entering into Jerusalem, they don't say one word about what he was doing except riding on a donkey. They don't talk about his face. They don't talk about him clapping or taking a bunch of roses or doing the beauty queen wave. Like They don't say anything like that which I think is so significant for us because what's the temptation when you're riding in on a parade? You start to love what you're hearing, don't you? You start to love that feeling of people adoring you. And if you're somebody like me that struggles with uh, attention and acceptance, it would be pretty hard not to overvalue the crowd's blessing of you, would it not? Wouldn't there be a part of all of us that if we're in that moment, even if we hate attention, if you've got crowds of people cheering for you, throwing confetti, they're super excited for you, don't you want that moment to what? Last forever? Don't you think Jesus felt that? Don't you think he looks out at the dusty streets in the city of Jerusalem, right? He's been here before, but it's been a long time. He sees people coming out to cheer for him, and they're dressed like he's dressed. Some of them might have been from his community, from the Jewish community. They're celebrating. They're saying Hosanna. They're quoting scriptures. This is what's recorded in the text. And if you think about your people, your tribe, the people that you love, and they're cheering for you, And they're loving you in that moment. And they are so stoked about what you are doing. Is it not the biggest temptation in the world to to put your value on what they're saying about you in that moment? I think this is one of the reasons so many professional athletes struggle in their careers. They struggle with the approval. They struggle with the crowd roaring for them one moment and booing them the next. Jesus knew that this crowd would completely abandon him and go carnivore on him in a couple of days. He knew it. He knew these folks were going to be cheering for him in one moment, and the next moment, just a couple of days later, totally turning their backs on him. So what decision does he make? I think he makes the courageous decision to correctly and appropriately pull his sense of provision, not from the people cheering 
but from who he is in Jesus Christ, who he's been, the identity he's been given by the Father. Remember, go back to his baptism. You are my son, the beloved. I hope, I bet that was running through his head in this moment. You are my son, the beloved. Don't get your identity from these people. They're going to turn their backs on you. This is great right now. This is a great moment. But do not put your weight down on this. His value is not based on how people feel about him. Let me say that again. His value is not based on how people feel about him. Anybody else in the room have a hard time with that? I know I'm not alone. Jesus shows us a pathway through this because he is simply present in the moment and then he goes on to the next thing. The truth of the gospel is so significant here because Jesus never has to look at the crowd and say, I want this power, I need this power. He never has to look at the people around him and say, I need you to keep following me, I need you to keep coming after me. What he looks at them and does is he loves them. And he sees them for who they are. They're people. And his provider is not people. The source of his life, who pours out his life into Jesus' life, it's the Father. It's not these folks cheering for him. The crowd is not his provider. God is his provider. So let's apply that to our lives because we're going to wrap up here. I wanted to keep it short because Megan did such a good job with leading our kids through such a great presentation. I mean, we could have gone home after that, right? Like, they just preached it so well. Here's how to apply this to your life. God is my provider. Say that with me. God is my provider. Anticipate what? Great things. Trust our provider. Here's how to apply it in the week ahead. When you are facing a challenge or a problem, you got something dropped on your desk at work that you are not anticipating, before you start reacting, pray. Just pause and pray. God, in this moment, you are my provider. And here's where we can kind of flip the script a little bit. Look at your bulletin. You see that fill in the blank that says, God is my provider? I want you to change that and put a little carrot in there and put the word not. So blank is, insert the word, not my provider. Blank is not my provider. Your challenge, our challenge in the week ahead, is to look at whatever comes up in front of us, whether it's another health crisis, whether it's money, whether it's our marriage, whether it's our relationship with roommates, and say, this is not my provider. I am not counting on my success at work to fill me up. It's good, it matters to me, but that will not be what fills up my life. My marriage, it is so important to me, but making my spouse happy, if that's what I'm building my life upon, if I'm counting on that to provide for me, I am in for a truckload of heartbreak. So using this script, God is my provider. Change it around. This is not my provider. My success at work, the praise of my boss, the, re- the reactions of the crowd around me, that is not my provider. I think it's just as important to name what our provider is as it is to name what it is not. Secondly, Jesus turned his face toward Jerusalem. Moment of courage. What's your Jerusalem? Jerusalem would be a place where you know you need to go, you must go, and you do not want to go there. Remember, Jesus knew all throughout his life, he proclaims this all throughout the Gospels, I'm going to die. I'm going to go before the show trial, and I'm going to die. And he knew what was coming, and he went there anyways. And later on in Luke's gospel, after the triumphal entry, just a little bit after this passage, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the people around him, because they still don't get it. They still don't understand what he is actually going to do for them. He's going to free them, and he's going to rescue them. What is our Jerusalem? 
What is the place that, not just intellectually, we kind of go, yeah, I know, I got to solve that problem. I got to get my budget figured out. I got to find a new job. What is the place that so touches your heart that you just go, oh, God, I can't face this by myself. We lived in a city in Colorado for a number of years called Grand Junction, which is a wonderful community. About 100,000 people live there. And it's the only major city between Salt Lake City and Denver on I-70. So if you've driven across country, gone along I-70, you've been through Grand Junction. And we loved living there. That city had the most profound commitment to the homeless, to helping people experiencing homelessness. Because, as you can imagine, a lot of people found their way to the city because there wasn't anything else around. So there was actually a department in uh, the police, or a division within the police department called the Homeless Outreach Team. And their job was when a new person came to town who was experiencing homelessness, they would just go to them. They would see them in a park, they'd see them on the street, they'd determine whether they were experiencing homelessness, and they'd say, hey, we're from the police department, we just want you to know we're here to help. We're here as a resource, we'd love to learn your name, if you have any contact info, we'd love to stay in touch with you. How can we help you get connected to resources around here? What an amazing commitment, right, from those officers to do that. So over the years, they built up this list of these folks who'd experienced homelessness. Some would come through at different times. And then during the spring, every year, the police department would invite different leaders from the faith community, different people from nonprofits, to come down to one of the parks near downtown. And they would have this ceremony. Remember, this is in the springtime. So flowers are blooming, the grass is green, the long Colorado winter is finally over. And every spring, they would take stock of how many people experiencing homelessness they knew had passed away during the winter because they had to sleep outside, because there's nowhere for them to go, because they were isolated, because they were cold, because they were alone. They were suffering in the streets, and they got no relief, and they passed. Because during a Colorado winter, if you don't have a place to go, it's tough. There would be a ceremony at this park where the officers and other leaders from the community, for everyone they knew who passed away in the wintertime from experiencing homelessness, they would plant a tree. They would dig a little hole in the ground, they'd put down a tree, and they would just speak that person's name. They would name them as a human being and say, we as a community mourn that this person died on our watch. And we take responsibility. That, for me, is a vision of the church. Because all around us are people experiencing the cold and the isolation and the near death and death that is coming without Christ. All around us, we are around people who are successful. They got all the stuff they could ever want. They got the degrees and they got the pedigrees, but they are toiling. They're dying slowly. And I don't want us to be a church that looks at those folks and says, good luck. Hope it goes well for you in the winter. I want us to be a church that says, how can we get you connected? How can you belong? You need to know the love of Jesus Christ. You need to know the warmth of his grace. You need to know his embrace and his power. You do not need to be in the cold anymore. So church, this week, let us be the kind of church that says, we're not going to plant any trees in the springtime because no one is going to perish on our watch. No one that we are connected to is going to continue to live apart from Jesus Christ because it's too important. His entry into Jerusalem is an entry into each of our hearts and our lives, proclaiming a kingdom of goodness and justice and mercy. And we are all connected to people who need to hear that truth. 
So in keeping with our theme, anticipate great things this week, church. As you think about your friends and coworkers and family members who are far from God, bring them here. Or invite them over for dinner. Or do something to reach out to them, to bring them in. And trust God, our provider, to bring incredible resources to bear, to change their life and your life and my life in ways that we can never ask or imagine. Let's do this together as a church. We can do this. And may we have a great Easter celebration next Sunday and in all the years to come.